When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Dear Young Rocker is more than just a podcast about music. It's a memoir of how it feels to survive high school when you don't fit in and the freeing feeling of picking up a guitar for the first time. It's also advice for anyone who is or was young and has ever felt weird or alone. Dear Young Rocker is written and narrated by me, Chelsea Erson, executive produced by Jake Brennan, and comes to you from Double Elvis Productions. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today's episode happened all because a relatively small group of much older women, largely from Korea and the Philippines, have been making global headlines. Yeah, so back in December... The governments of Japan and South Korea came to an agreement to sort of, I don't know, apologize for and try to compensate survivors of the comfort women system of basically sex slavery during World War II. But the women who are making headlines, the ones Kristen is referring to, are women who have already been protesting the treatment of comfort women during World War II for decades and are fed up with the sort of softball approach that both Japan and South Korea have taken to compensating them for their suffering during the war. And so you have a lot of women now saying that the agreement that was reached between Japan and South Korea in December is not good enough. Well, yeah, because the the core group of those protesters are survivors Mm -hmm. from the comfort women's system. Um, And a lot of them are dying at this point, you know, and it's starting to feel like the Japanese and South Korean governments are almost just putting it off and putting it off and putting it off until all of them pass away so that they don't have to deal with the issue like right in front of their faces in the form mm-hmm. of like these women who understandably will not let the trauma that happened to them go. And speaking of trauma, we should issue a trigger warning at this point um, to say that we will be talking about rape and sexual slavery in this episode. Um, so let's talk about how all of this happened, Caroline, because this is such a a gruesome chapter in our like military, global military history, but um, something that's really important for all of us to know about. Yeah. So just to give you a little background, between 1932 and 1945, there were tens of thousands of women, uh, many of them Korean, but also Japanese, Filipino, Taiwanese, Chinese and Dutch uh, who were sold coerced or otherwise forced into prostitution in officially sanctioned Japanese brothels. And they were euphemistically called comfort women. And there's been some really interesting uh, arguments over language over the years. Um, the Japanese did coin the comfort woman term, but uh, other women have come out since then, particularly survivors, and said, We weren't comfort women. We were sex slaves. And still other women have taken issue with the term sex slaves to say that they were forced prostitutes. But whatever you call them, there were between 20,000 and 400,000 of them from that 1932 to 1945 period. But most ranges put the number at 50 to 200,000. And the brothels where a lot of them were forcibly taken between the ages of uh, 13 
in some extreme cases, but uh, usually around the age of 20, the those brothels were called comfort stations. Um, and these survivors are now in their 80s and 90s, the ones who are still alive. And for years, though, after this, protests have been happening weekly outside the Japanese embassy in Seoul, demanding that apology mm-hmm. that, um, you know, the Japanese and South Korean leaders are slowly, maybe kind of starting to hash out. Um, and there is a lot of diplomatic controversy, though, that we'll get into more later about those protests in a, stash, a statue that the protesters erected in front of that Japanese embassy um, of a girl with a bird on her shoulder who represents all of those uh, comfort women. So what went down for a little more detail um, in December was uh, Japan and South Korea reaching agreement that Japan would apologize and pay one billion yen to fund survivors. And that translates to eight point three million dollars. And South Korea, at Japan's request, would look into, in quotes, taking down that statue that has been up since 2011. But the thing is, the women aren't going to receive direct compensation. Okay, the deal says that the money will, quote unquote, support the women and fund projects for recovering the honor and dignity and healing the psychological wounds that took place because of the comfort woman system. So kind of. Again, being almost euphemistic and talking around the problem. And so, like we hinted at, a lot of survivors are protesting the deal, saying that South Korea's president negotiated it on their behalf and without their consent. And these women are saying that the deal lacks sincerity and any official accountability on either country's part. And you know what all of this reminds me of? Um, and it's a comparison that's on a much s- smaller scale, arguably, than than this kind of uh, World War II atrocity is the NFL's response to domestic violence and how they similarly sort of set up a, a pool of money that would go to this vague cause of helping, you know, survivors heal. But you you don't really know what that actually means. Um, and Speaking of the money, a lot of these survivors are insisting that it's not even about that. Um, this is something that an 88-year-old survivor, Lee Wong Su, said, um, quote, I wonder whether the talks took place with the victims really in mind. We're not after the money. If the Japanese committed their sins, they should offer direct government compensation. And they want that sincere apology and for in that apology for what happened to them to be named. Yeah. And so some of the more recent news, though, is that as of early April, there's been no money. No money has shown up. And it's not entirely the fault of Japan. It seems to be sort of fault on both sides, because in early April, the leaders of Japan and South Korea met again, again, agreeing to implement this deal. But the whole agreement was that South Korea would first set up a foundation to accept the money. And they haven't done that yet. So, you know, we're in 2016. This happened leading up to and during World War II. And there's still there still hasn't really been a direct resolution. And this isn't the first time that unsatisfying deals have been struck in the name of these women. Uh, back in 1965, Japan gave more than $800 million in economic aid and loans to South Korea. But none of that was specifically addressing comfort women. And Japan did acknowledge its responsibility and apologized in a 1993 statement, uh, which the government since has actively tried to water down. And a private fund that was established in 1995 for those survivors was funded largely by private and citizen donations, although the Japanese government did contribute a few million. And in the same way, Caroline, that that we've seen, say, in the United States, Holocaust deniers. Um, You have in 1996 an incident when uh, a mention of comfort women in, I think it was Japanese textbooks, apparently, quote, sparked a strong wave of masculinist nationalism, according to author C. Sarah So, that resulted in an anti-comfort women campaign, which essentially dismissed them as just a group of 
willing prostitutes who should not be trusted or believed. And they just followed the military around just like groupies. That's all. There was no coercion involved. Yeah. And lest you think this was just a bunch of maybe angry male citizens saying this, uh, this was basically the official stance of the Japanese president in 2012 when he and four future cabinet members placed an ad in a New Jersey newspaper decrying a new comfort woman memorial that had been erected in a largely Korean neighborhood in New Jersey. And in addition to saying like, gee, I wish you hadn't done that, New Jersey Korean community, they at the time and since have proceeded to paint Japan as the victim of almost slander for people even wanting to talk about comfort women. But one thing that documentarian Tiffany Shung has emphasized about the stories of these surviving comfort women, whom she calls uh, the grandmas, uh, and she's making an entire documentary about them called The Apology. Um, She's emphasized how this isn't just about them. It's about all survivors of sexual assault. Um, She said, This apology that they're fighting for is really for all of us. We need this apology as a society that has faced injustice, specifically women who have faced sexual violence. Yeah. And the director said that she was able to form this bond with these uh, Filipino grandmas, uh, as she calls them, uh, because she herself had been a victim of sexual violence. And so there was this fabulous article that we read not only about Shung's film, The Apology, but also her experience meeting and bonding with these women uh, and the importance of having women tell women's stories. Because, yes, the comfort women's stories have absolutely been told. The history is out there. But as the author of the article and as Sung points out, there's there's a division there when you have men telling the story of these intensely private women who have been essentially abused and neglected their entire lives. Um, and so I am I'm really excited that this documentary is coming out. And uh, like Kristen said, it is perfect timing because there's there is a sense of urgency to to get that apology and to honor these women. So now we have to talk about how this system even worked um, to fully understand why these women need this apology so badly. Um, but before we get to World War II, we have to go back to the late 19th century when Korea signed a treaty with Japan after an incident between a Korean garrison and a Japanese warship. And this treaty would eventually open the door for Japan to annex Korea as a colony in 1910. And with all of this, you have elements of racism, classism, and essentially violent masculinity all creating, building up this comfort women system. Yeah. And so you get licensed prostitution first emerging in a Korean port city where Japan had established a settlement. And the bigger the Japanese military presence, the more pleasure houses spring up to serve them. Uh, A lot of the women who were working in these uh, brothels basically were Japanese and they had been duped right off the bat. You get coercion and deception. They had been duped by recruiters who told them that, well, you'll just likely be a second tier geisha essentially when you travel to Korea, not a prostitute. So right off the bat, you get the theme of lying to women to convince them to be sex workers. Um, After annexation in 1910, Up until 1915, the number of Korean prostitutes skyrockets compared to a relatively small increase of Japanese prostitutes in Korea. And in 1916, we get some regulations. That's great, right? That's positive. Regulations? Helpful? Well, kind of, but not really. The colonial government in Korea called for regulations of prostitution Only out of fears over venereal diseases. But it's not like it improved working conditions for these women, which were horrendous. And it didn't change the fact that 13-year-old girls in many of these brothels were the most popular with the Japanese soldiers. And overall, when you look at the entire population of prostitutes in Korea, 
Korean sex workers skewed way younger and earned way less than their Japanese co-workers, many of whom had already worked in the adult entertainment industry in Japan, as opposed to the Korean women, many of whom had sort of been forced into this line of work because of difficult financial times they were sustaining because of absent husbands. So in 1925, Japan signs an international treaty banning the trafficking of women and girls. Okay, seems like another good thing, kind of like those colonial regulations. But it includes a provision to allow the practice to continue in the colonies. So eventually, Korean women become known as the industrial comfort women in Japan and China. And by the early 30s, there were about 100 Korean women per month who were sold overseas. And it was pretty much a normal part of life. And by the mid-30s, 45% of Koreans had syphilis. And then in 1932, we get the first official military comfort station. Yeah, so as early as 1932, after there were hostilities between Japan and China in Shanghai, you get Japan establishing comfort stations for their troops in China. And these first military-sanctioned sex slaves, I mean, that's what they were, were Korean women who had been living in Japan. They were sent to this area around Shanghai And they were sent because the commanding officer had ordered the governor in that region of Japan to send them. They were sent for as if they were rations for the troops to live on. And the reasoning was that a formal system of controlled prostitution would result in a reduced number of rape reports in the area where the Japanese Imperial Army was based, and it would serve to control venereal diseases. So the answer to preventing men from raping is to enslave other women. And here is the thing that listeners should keep in mind, not to give away too much about our next podcast episode coming out. But this idea, this whole concept of, you know, the military is coming in, rape reports go up. So we need to just bring in prostitutes of some sort so that men can, uh, these soldiers can relieve their their sexual needs. That is not exclusive Mm -mm. to Japan. This is something that happened in militaries, including the U.S. of A., all all throughout this time. But I don't want to get too ahead of myself. Let's go back to uh, 1937 when... The comfort station system was revived after Japan captures the Chinese city of Nanking during the Nanking Massacre, which included six weeks of rape and murder. So, again, how do we maintain discipline and morale? I mean, all of these atrocities are going on. Oh, that comfort station system thing from 1932, that that kept the soldiers pretty happy. Yeah. And so over the course of just a few weeks, the Japanese had used their trade contacts. Again, it's disgusting to think of just using trade contacts the way you would try to, like, ship in weapons and military supplies to access women. Uh, but also used deception. They promised women jobs as cooks and laundresses for the army just to get as many women as possible. And this particular station that was set up in the wake of the Nanking Massacre uh, was a prototype for later stations, which opened and were overseen by the military. But they were also run by civilians who were more than happy to earn money and paramilitary rank in doing so. You were awarded paramilitary rank if you, as a citizen ran a military brothel. And in Korea, those civilians were largely Korean men and women who helped lure the girls for the Japanese. Yeah, that was one thing, Caroline, that jumped out to me when we were reading a first-hand account of one of these women who had been lied to. She thought she was going to get a factory job, and she ends up on a boat where she sort of passed along to a couple like a man and his uh, a dude and a lady who were, you know, tricking her into doing all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just it's the whole thing is is really hard to wrap your mind around sometimes. Um, but if we go to 1942, we see this whole system being rewarded over and over again. Um, for instance, 
a Japanese Navy lieutenant was stationed in Borneo, and he was fed up with airfield construction work being stalled because all the dudes were just like fighting, gambling, uh, sexually assaulting women. It was just pandemonium. And rather than figuring out a way to discipline these soldiers, they were like, huh, oh, yeah, comfort stations. So you have Lieutenant Yushiro Nakasone organizing a comfort station with four Indonesian women. And he found that it, quote, mitigated the mood of his soldiers so well that later a naval report commended him for implementing this comfort station. Um, but there is sort of an awkward side note to this. Uh, Nakasone, that same lieutenant, was prime minister of Japan from 1982 to 1987. And in October 2014, his son became chair of a commission established to, quote, consider concrete measures to restore Japan's honor with regard to the comfort women issue. Um, and Nakasone, if I'm remembering correctly, the former prime minister, um, not his son, wrote a memoir confirming in which he, he did confirm all of these comfort women's um, testimonies, which had previously been been doubted. Well, yeah, I mean, he'd be he'd been commended for it and had become prime minister. So, I mean, he he essentially had nothing to lose yeah. by confirming this stuff. But I mean, it seemed like I don't know in the not that it makes it OK, but in the way I was reading about his memoir, it didn't sound bragging at all, but rather, I mean, remorseful. I mean, he mm. knew it was messed up. Yeah, well, it is. Yeah. Uh, and writing about this whole situation with Nakasone, they, uh, the New York Times wrote that his decision to provide comfort women to his troops was then replicated by thousands of Imperial Japanese Army and Navy officers across the region, both before and during World War II, as a matter of policy. So all across the region, they wrote, women were treated as the first reward of conquest. Again, women were objects. They were nothing but military rations. Yeah, I mean, and because of that, they were doled out as officially as, say, you know, an MRE. So you have the Army and Navy trafficking young women, putting them in specially built facilities, establishing a fee structure for comfort station clients, and providing medical inspections to lower the rates of uh, STDs. And if you're thinking WTF, because I hope you are, you should be, uh, I mean, just look at the underlying attitude. The military thought that sex was good for morale and that at least by having a system of controlled prostitution, they could limit STD transmission, like you said, and therefore keep men happier and in the field longer. And keep in mind that as all of this is going on, armies in Europe and the United States are doing the same kinds of things. Yeah, but I mean, this was as official a part of the war effort as you can get. If we jump back to 1941, one source we read said that Japan's war machine rested squarely on the contributions of Korean migrant laborers overseas. Uh, the colonial Korean government required Korean men, 16 to 40, and unmarried Korean women, 16 to 25, to enroll as a potential labor supply. They did not require the same thing of Japanese women, though, because those women, as part of the war effort, were expected to stay home and pop out more Japanese babies. Now, enrolling as a potential labor supply... And enrolling to contribute to the war effort as a Korean woman did not mean the same thing as it did in the United States, where we're cheering on Rosie Riveters and the like. Uh, in 1944, you get the creation of the Women's Volunteer Labor Corps with both Korean and Japanese women. Uh, it's not entirely clear how many women were part of this corps. Uh, and while some, you know, did become secretaries, they did paperwork, they sewed uniforms, Others were sent like cattle to the front lines to be comfort women, and the core quickly, in people's minds, became associated with prostitution. And, I mean, if women volunteered for the war effort, and, I mean, they thought they were volunteering for the war effort not to be prostitutes, and they didn't show up for duty, this official system of volunteering allowed police officials to go to women's homes 
and enforce their service. Essentially show up at their house and drag them away. Yeah. Service in quotes as in sex slavery. Yeah. And I mean, granted, it wasn't only Korean women being victimized, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast. It was essentially anywhere occupied by Japan's imperial military. But they weren't all from Asian countries. Um, this was sort of unexpected to me. You also had Dutch boys, girls, men and women seized from internment camps in the Dutch East Indies, now part of Indonesia, uh, to satisfy really a range of sexual preferences. And you have a lot of instances of Dutch mothers in these internment camps trading sex for food, trading sex uh, for protection of their children. And one Dutch, now Australian, she and her husband live in Australia, uh, activist is Jan Ruff O'Hearn, who at 93 is still actively fighting for apologies and fighting for visibility for these survivors. And she was one of those young Dutch women forced into sex slavery. But she's one of those who definitely says comfort women is an insult. To call us comfort women, that's not what we were. But... There are so many racist and classist overtones in this whole discussion because the Dutch government wanted to punish the prostitution of their women, but not necessarily because these were human rights violations, more because these women were upper class and white. And you just simply can't have Asian men touching and abusing white women. I mean, you also have instances of British and Australian women. Uh, there was a hospital ship that wrecked off of Sumatra, and they were essentially given the choice by their captors of starving in a POW camp or being sent to brothels. Yeah, I mean, and and the horrifying thing about all of this is that wherever you are on the map, like you can't talk about women in wartime and not talk about rape. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's... It's a fact, and it always, always happens. But in the case of the comfort women who were exploited by Japan, the majority were Korean. And we are going to talk more about some of the social and cultural systems that allowed this to perpetuate uh, when we come right back from a quick break. So, Caroline, Mother's Day is coming up, and don't you want to give Sally a gift as unique as she is? Because there's no one quite like Sally. By the way, listeners, Sally is Caroline's mom, not just like a random Sally that we know. And with Mother's Day around the corner, why don't you celebrate her with Sherry's Berries? Oh, they're so delicious. And right now, you can get Sherry's Berries, freshly dipped chocolate strawberries, starting at around $19.99 plus shipping or double berries for just 10 bucks more. This, my friends, is an exclusive offer for Sminty listeners. So go to berries.com, click on the microphone in the top right corner, and type in the code HOWSTUFFWORKS. That's three separate words, HOWSTUFFWORKS. Works And to give you a tantalizing preview of what Sherry's Berries offers, we're talking berries dipped in milk, white or dark chocolatey goodness topped with chocolate chips, chopped nuts and signature swizzles. They're huge. They're fresh. They're juicy. They're delicious. And you can also pick the delivery date you want. And it's guaranteed. Or you get your money back. It's a win-win with Sherry's Berries. And this is an exclusive offer for our listeners only when you use the code HOWSTUFFWORKS. Click on the microphone in the top right corner and type in three separate words, HOWSTUFFWORKS. Go to berries.com, click on the microphone, and enter our code, HOWSTUFFWORKS. That's three separate words. How stuff works. This is a limited time offer and Mother's Day is next week, so make sure to order now. So we want to give a little bit of cultural context to what was happening in Korea along with uh, the rise of comfort women. And we are citing research from C. Sarah So, who we uh, cited earlier. She wrote The Comfort Women, Sexual Violence, and Postcolonial Memory in Korea and Japan. And she writes about how the rise of forced prostitution among Korean women coincided with many breaking away from Confucian mores and what were called the three obediences, which was obedience to father, to husband, and once widowed, obedience to your son in favor of being a new woman. 
you know, kind of the new woman in quotes, like we uh, saw here in the United States uh, around the 1920s and 30s. Um, and we have more of these Korean new women striking out in pursuit of an education, a job, or simply to escape a bad home situation. They wanted to make new lives for themselves. Yeah. And I mean, class definitely enters into this situation because a lot of these women were poor. They were working with their impoverished families on farms, and they wanted to go to Japan to get those well-paying and high-paying factory jobs. And sure, there were some women who actually did get those jobs, not to mention women who became doctors, teachers, reporters, waitresses, you name it. But, and this is really no different than the quote-unquote new woman in America striking out and getting those jobs, you were still expected to be a sexually attractive young thing to go get a job outside the home. But... Many of the male factory recruiters who visited these small towns looking for women, of course, weren't actually trying to find factory girls. They were there to take women away from their homes straight to these military brothels. And in a lot of cases, they didn't have to work hard. Uh, There are stories about these recruiters presenting Young girls who really didn't know any better with a package of new, fancy, modern clothes and shoes, promising them a better life. Like, here, look at this great outfit. Like, this is all the rage in the big city. Don't you want to come work in these factories so you can make money to buy more of these clothes and wear them all around town? And so you have these girls who've never been away from home, never been outside their villages, don't have much education and certainly don't have much life experience outside of the farm. And they were easily duped, especially, especially, and this is so, it just, the rain clouds keep getting bigger, especially because local authorities and even teachers, people that these girls grew up knowing and trusting, were sometimes in on the recruitment efforts. And these efforts were huge just in order to keep up with demand as more soldiers were stationed overseas. And they used violence, deception, coercion, including attacking and killing family members who tried to protect the girls. I mean, you also have situations where they would come in, uh, rape the girl in front of her parents before taking her away. So, I mean, just horrors on top of horrors. Um, And many of the girls had already been prostituted and abused multiple times by their own families as well. Yeah. And so so the author so uh, writes that, yes, Japan's colonialism absolutely perpetuated this system and undoubtedly, she wrote, facilitated the large scale victimization of tens of thousands of Korean women who suffered an unspeakable sexual ordeal and ethnic discrimination. However, She writes that their lifelong sufferings are more complex. And what makes them more complex is the gender-based violence that was tolerated in their already patriarchal home and family structures. And they themselves in Korea were, quote, steeped in masculinist sexual culture. And so a lot of times money for the family and men's sexual drives and dominance were more important than women's health and safety and agency. And a lot of families would sell their daughters for years at a time. And this is outside of the Japanese soldiers even taking them. They would prostitute their daughters for four to seven years at a time, usually getting to take a cut of whatever their daughters earned in the brothels. So once we get into the comfort stations, what was going on? Well, We know details about life in there because it was highly regulated and maintained. You have the Japanese military meticulously recording details of this system that really appeared to be regarded as just another amenity of of military life. So you have the rules for comfort stations in places like Shanghai, Okinawa and other parts of Japan and China and the Philippines that still survive, detailing rules for hygiene, hours of service, contraception, payment of women, and prohibitions of alcohol and weapons. Um, So even though brothels already existed in Japan, there was licensed prostitution, you still had these comfort stations. It was like, again, that's where the amenity factor comes in. It's like, oh, well, here's 
here's a bonus. Um, and all of those regulations don't even make all that much sense. You know, it's obviously a good idea to keep booze and weapons out of there. But the attempt to impose fair treatment and decorum are in stark contrast to the brutality that these women reported. And the significance of this documentation is that it really shows not only how widespread this comfort woman practice was and how deeply rooted it was, but also how legitimized it was. I mean, they're like Kristen said, the Japanese are providing comfort stations, even in Japan, where there were already brothels and houses of pleasure because it was regulated. It was like, okay, you've got to go to the doctor and then you've got to go visit the comfort station because, you know, it's regulated and more, quote unquote, hygienic than, I guess, going to your average Japanese brothel. And to get a glimpse into sort of the range of experiences that women had at these places, it was common for some, not all, to have, quote unquote, day jobs. Uh, they might be working in the fields, farming. Uh, they might be cooking, digging trenches, etc., only to then start their night job where they were raped all night long. Uh, their movement was restricted. They lived behind barbed wire. They were guarded. They had no free time. And many of the women, the firsthand accounts after the war, described barely even having time to wash themselves. And the places that they would do all of this uh, varied. I mean, it might have been a building taken over by the military. It might be a makeshift structure. They would uh, create rooms, in quotes, by uh, just hanging mats up as dividers. And there was really only room for a mattress on the floor. There was no protection from the heat or cold. And healthcare was provided, but only for treating STDs. Physical injuries like bruises, cuts, and burns were simply dismissed. And I mean, of course, it's worth noting that these bruises, cuts, and burns were from the soldiers. Oh, yeah. They weren't just like bumping into things. So it didn't matter what the soldiers did to them as long as they did not have an STD. And I mean, we we read a bunch of firsthand accounts uh, across several projects. There are it's not just the documentary filmmaker that we cited earlier in the podcast. There are photographers who are trying to keep track of these women's experiences so we don't lose them. Uh, there's one resource called The True Stories of the Korean Comfort Women from 1992, uh, they spoke with Kim Tuk Chin, who describes her experience of being 17 years old in 1937 and hearing that girls were being recruited to work at factories in Japan. She she heard about this man who was in town and that he would give you a good job. You just had to travel to Japan to get your factory job. And this is the woman that Kristen hinted at earlier in the podcast. So Tuk Chin gets on a boat to Nagasaki and she's full of optimism. She's excited to make money. And she starts to realize that something's fishy when she and other girls start to notice that they're being guarded by soldiers. And she starts asking, you know, what's going on? What's happening? That first night that they land in Japan, she was raped by a high-ranking Japanese soldier. And she and the other women were then taken to an official military brothel near Shanghai, and she told her interviewer that each of us had to serve an average of 30 to 40 men each day, and we often had no time to sleep. And she also writes about how condoms were common in the house. They were in every room available, and about half of the men agreed to use them. The other half, however, uh, didn't care because they... Even when she lied and said, I have a venereal disease. If you catch it, you'll die. She had so many men who said, I don't care. I'm going to die on the battlefield anyway. And so she really feared for her life from every angle. Yeah. I mean, she feared also, you know, catching, contracting an SCD, also getting pregnant. Um, I mean, they had no control over their own bodies. And, and that's also, too, why I think that these, um, visual documentaries of these women, whether it's on film or through photography, is also so powerful because reading these accounts is almost so horrifying that it is hard to grasp and believe. And seeing the faces of these women mm -hmm. humanizes um, their experiences so much. Um, 
A woman named Niem is another one who uh, Jan Banning has taken photographs of and interviewed. Um, she was taken in 1943 when she was just 10 years old. And she told Banning, I was nothing but a toy. As a human being, I meant nothing. And that's how it felt during the Japanese era. And another Filipino woman that Banning profiled was a woman named Mastia, who told her that she was picked up by a Japanese captain to be his personal comfort woman. And this wasn't uncommon. I mean, you had women living a full range of admittedly all horrific experiences during before and during the war as comfort women, whether they were living in a brothel with a 100 other women or whether they were a personal sex slave to a high ranking officer. But Masia said that she lived with this captain in his barracks and had to travel with him from place to place. And after the war, when she finally made it home, she went through what she described as a religious cleansing to wash away sin. But she was always an outcast after that. People literally called her a, quote, Japanese hand-me-down. And talking about the the continuing trauma that these women experienced after they returned home, uh, Banning also profiles a woman named Renashi, who was kidnapped on her way home from school at 13. And she said that in order to get home after the war, she was so in pain all over her body that she couldn't walk. And so she crawled home. And she said, I only married late because I first wanted to think. My wounds hadn't healed yet. I was afraid and I wanted to get better first. And she ended up having to have surgeries for internal injuries. And that's also another theme that you hear in interviews with these survivors of the physical Mm -hmm. damage that was done to their bodies as well, in addition to forced sterilization. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Some of these women uh, ended up sterile after these experiences, whether it was because of the extent or the of the physical trauma or whether it was because doctors removed their uteruses. So, I mean, the amount of physical, mental and emotional trauma that these women faced cannot be overstated. And things really didn't get that much better once the war ended. And this is coming. A lot of this information today has come from a really incredibly detailed and horrifyingly comprehensive 1996 UN report that the Japanese government tried to have retracted, but the author uh, avoided that. Um, so after the war, many of these comfort women were killed by the retreating Japanese troops or simply abandoned like so much trash. Uh, in Micronesia, for example, the Japanese army killed 70 women in a single night, quote, because, quote, they felt the women would be an encumbrance or an embarrassment were they to be captured by the advancing American troops. And the ones who weren't abandoned or killed like women who were serving at frontline comfort stations, they were expected to take part in the last-ditch effort fighting, including going on suicide missions with soldiers. And many, like Renashi, had to crawl or walk miles and miles and miles back to their village, where they may or may not have been accepted by the surviving members of their family. But for those women who had to find their way back home, A lot of them would have no idea where they were because they had been, you know, taken along with the army. So when the war ends and they're completely abandoned, it's not like they have some kind of GPS system, you know, to be able to get back to their village. So even just getting back home was a whole other ordeal. And they had no money. Uh, Very few ever received any payment. Um, and then afterwards, of course, they're grappling with trauma, infertility, poverty, STDs, and the continuing stigma mm-hmm. of having been a sex slave, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, think about the trauma that they went through and then being turned away frequently by family members and other village residents. I mean, it's no wonder that it took until 1991 for the first former comfort woman to speak out. And she was afterward followed over the course of 20 or so years by more than 200 other women. But still, I mean, that's an incredible number of women who were forced or felt forced to live in silence 
after the fact. And as we'll talk about more in our next episode, um, you know, the, the comfort woman system and structure really existed across militaries from the 19th century, I mean, and earlier on. And so this system of treating women like like just sex toys was not uncommon across the globe. And that's why it's so important to talk about this shameful history. Well, and you use the word shameful. I mean, it seems like that's something that has kept these survivors silent for so long because mm-hmm. of the shame attached to it. And it's also something that has held up diplomatic negotiations and also apologies to these women, formal reparations to these women, because it is a shameful chapter in, you know, both countries' histories. And mm-hmm. no one really wants to take full ownership of it. Um, there is this place called the House of Sharing, which is essentially like a living museum and also a nursing home for comfort station survivors. And one of them in 2013 told the BBC We're all very old and we're dying each year one by one. Historically speaking, the war might have stopped, but for us, it's still going on. It never ended. We want the Japanese emperor to come here, kneel before us, and apologize sincerely. But I think the Japanese are just waiting for us to die. And I think that's why we have to make sure that, I mean, obviously, they are going to die at some point, but we can't let the history of what happened to them die. Yeah, we absolutely can't let the history be buried with them. And we can't, I mean, we can't let people off the hook just because they're members of the military of whatever era, of whatever country. Yeah, I mean, and just kind of turn turn a blind eye because it's a hard thing to talk about. Who Mm -hmm. wants to think about such an atrocity? Yeah. But we have to. And I think that... Part of what has let people turn a blind eye, whether it is comfort women in Asia or whether it's forced prostitution anywhere, is just really awful and twisted ideas about women as objects and women's sexuality and men just having a right to women's bodies, especially in wartime. Rape is an act of terrorism, and this system is really no different. Yeah, I mean, and hinge to that as well. There's the whole disbelief of women mm-hmm. about what they say happened to their bodies. Um, so, listeners, now we want to hear from you. I mean, we, we're especially curious to hear from Korean and Japanese listeners um, about this because obviously we are talking about this from an extremely Western American point of view. Um, so, we'd really like to get more insight into all of this and sort of the the tone and the the feelings within these communities about uh, what happened during World War II and even afterwards. So momstuffathowstuffworks.com is our email address. You can tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Okay, well, I have a letter here from Victoria in response to our sexual harassment history episode. Victoria says, first, thank you as usual for not forgetting to mention us trans women and how these issues can often affect or not affect us. This episode was very timely. I came out as transgender and started living full time as a woman last December at 37 years old. And I think I experienced my first instance of sexual harassment last week by another woman, the CEO of our company. It was great to hear you talking about this issue. This isn't something I ever imagined I'd be dealing with, and I haven't had the experience of growing up as a girl, and my mom never talked to me about this kind of thing. I'm struggling not to blame myself. I'm struggling to convince myself that this is really happening. I'm struggling to convince myself that even though this is something many women go through, that doesn't make it okay. Right now, I'm just struggling to make it through the day without crying. Thank you for talking about this, and I'd love to hear from any other transgender women who've gone through their first experience with sexual harassment. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you for sharing your story, Victoria. And I've got a letter here from Kimberly, also about the sexual harassment episode, in which 
We broke down um, where sexual harassment is most prevalent, like industry-wise, and arts and entertainment was one of them. So Kimberly wrote in saying, I wanted to shed a little light on your surprise at arts and entertainment being fields with high rates of reported sexual harassment. I'm an audio engineer for live theater and have worked in the film, television, and music industry. While, as you mentioned, I'm sure dealing with clients and customers can expose folks to some pretty nasty behavior, it's also worthwhile to note that women only make up a tiny fraction of the crew and positions of creative control and that plenty of harassment comes from our coworkers. My own field is almost 95% male and often pretty rough. Technical crews are a fairly blue-collar lot, and the environment isn't unlike working with Teamsters, ironworkers, or longshoremen. Sexism and sexual harassment are pretty rampant. Men also occupy the majority of director and producer roles. As you mentioned, the casting couch is a reality, but once they get a foot in the door, women artists and technicians are subject to threats of professional repercussion if they don't respond favorably to their supervisor's sexual advances. Kesha's recent story comes to mind of how producers can abuse their artists. The vulnerability of folks to sexual harassment in arts and entertainment is seriously compounded by the lack of structure to report problems to. Lots of production companies are either too small to have HR or don't make it available to their employees who are mostly freelance contractors. Plus, there's hardly any time to seek recourse when production companies form LLCs that only exist for the length of the gig. By the time an investigation gets started, the show has wrapped. It can be pretty tough out here, but I think it's getting better. I see more and more women in my own little field of live audio every year, and lots of big-name celebrities are coming forward to share their stories about the discrimination and harassment women face in showbiz. I hope that sheds a little light on things. Well, absolutely does, Kimberly. And thank you so much. And thanks to all of you who have written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about Japan's comfort women, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.